bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. Tonight, President Donald Trump will be giving a State of the Union address, and we'll certainly be listening for any references to affordable housing, community development, and the like. We do expect a shout-out for Opportunity Zones. We'll report on the State of the Union speech next week. Now, my deadline reminder for listeners this week relates to the allocation methodology for low-income housing tax credits within California. And the deadline for this reminder is Wednesday, February 12th. Now, California is in the process of deciding how to apportion nearly $1 billion in disaster area federal low-income housing tax credits for 2020. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, Congress awarded California an extra $98 million a year, or $980 million over the 10-year credit period, in 9% low-income housing tax credits. The one-time extra award is to help provide for housing for those residents displaced by major fires in 2017 and 2018 in California. Now, the California Tax Allocation Committee has released proposed regulation changes to account for the extra low-income housing tax credits and the public is invited to comment on those proposed regulations. Now, the comment deadline is next Wednesday, February 12th. In today's show notes, I'll include a link to the proposed regulations and to a notes from Novogratz blog post summarizing the topic. I'm also going to tweet out the links as well. Turning now to today's podcast, I'm going to start with infrastructure plans and then discuss proposed supplemental appropriations, more spending for Puerto Rico, and the status of Community Reinvestment Act reform. From there, I'll discuss guidance on local tax income limits for the average income test. I'm also going to share a recap of highlights from last week's Novogratik New Markets Tax Credit Conference. And then I'm going to close out with brief news on proposed Opportunity Zones regulations for Puerto Rico. We have lots of news to cover, so if you're ready, let's get started. Now, infrastructure. House Ways and Means Democrats released their infrastructure plan last week. The framework is called Moving Forward. And the framework is a five-year, $760 billion infrastructure plan that would expand, in part, existing infrastructure tax credits, as well as create new ones. Specifically, the framework says that it would expand and build upon the New Markets Tax Credit, Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit, and the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. And if those tax incentives are expanded as part of an infrastructure package, then that would provide substantial opportunity for the affordable housing and community development communities to build on their existing success. Now that said, the plan did not include any specific details on how it would strengthen these tools, how it would expand them. That's why I referenced to the cost being $760 billion plus. Nor did the framework suggest how the plan would be paid for. That's a critical piece of this. It's a crucial element. And that's the element that has held up action on infrastructure legislation in the past. Now, the release of the infrastructure framework last week did coincide with a House Ways and Means Committee hearing on funding and financing infrastructure investments. Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal, he's from Massachusetts, in his opening statement called for continued investment through the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, New Markets Tax Credit, and Historic Tax Credit. We are very fortunate in the tax credit incentive community to have Chairman Neal, a longtime supporter and champion of those initiatives, serving as chairman. Laura Cantor, 
of the Massachusetts Development Finance Agency was a witness at the hearing. And she spoke highly of the long housing tax credit, historic tax credit, and the new markets tax credit as infrastructure tools. Now, a few ways and means Democrats asked Cantor about how to enhance or improve the long housing tax credit. Now, I should note that those Ways and Means Committee members who posed the questions also are co-sponsors of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, or AHCIA. That's the bipartisan bill that would expand and improve the low-income housing tax credit. Now, in response, Canner urged Congress to establish a 4% floor for the so-called 4% low-income housing tax credit, increase the 9% allocation amount, as well as expand bond recycling. Now, all three of these provisions are key provisions of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act that would provide more resources for affordable rental housing development. Now, this testimony is significant because it helps elevate the visibility of these incentives and increases the chance, the chances of them being included in a final infrastructure solution. And continuing with infrastructure, I have some details on an emergency supplemental appropriations bill that would help rebuild Puerto Rico's infrastructure after the recent earthquakes. House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Nita Lowy of New York is the lead sponsor. The bill is H.R. 5687, and it would provide three emergency supplemental appropriations for Puerto Rico. First, it would provide an additional $500 million in new market tax allocation authority for the years 2020 and 2021. Second, the bill would increase the loan closing tax rate ceiling for Puerto Rico by $50 million for calendar year 2020. That $50 million translates into $500 million over the 10-year credit period. And third, the bill would provide $3.26 billion through the Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Program. Now, if passed, these funds would represent a significant investment opportunity in rebuilding the area. Puerto Rico would also have $1.53 billion set aside for mitigation in areas that experienced major disasters in 2018 and 2019. A link to the bill is included in today's show notes. Now, let's switch gears to banking regulation. I want to follow up on a topic that I discussed on last week's podcast, the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA, reform. The House Financial Services Committee last Wednesday held a hearing on whether the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency is undermining the CRA's purpose and intent with proposed regulations that the OCC released in conjunction with the FDIC, notably without participation from the Federal Reserve. This hearing is of particular interest to Tax Credit Tuesday listeners because of concerns that the proposed regulations, if finalized, could have a detrimental effect on low-governing tax credit, new markets tax credit, and historic tax credit equity investing. Now, the hearing last week had one witness, Comptroller of the Currency, Joseph Odding. During the hearing, Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters raised concerns about the OCC and FDIC's proposed regulations, saying that the regulations run contrary to the purpose of the CRA. She said that, under the proposal, the Community Reinvestment Act would turn into the Community Disinvestment Act. Chairman Waters said the proposed rule would lead to widespread bank disinvestment in the low- and moderate-income communities that the CRA was created to protect. The chairwoman's objections are similar to concerns previously expressed by the Federal Reserve and other community development advocates. And one specific concern 
is about the proposed elimination of the CRA investment test. The Federal Reserve and others are concerned that replacing the investment test would remove an important incentive for banks to invest in affordable housing and community development, bank long-closing tax credit and new market tax credit investment. A majority of long-closing tax credit and new markets tax credit equity investment comes from banks that are overseen by the OCC. And so, as noted earlier, there are concerns that these proposed regulations, if they are finalized, could have a detrimental effect on long-closing tax credit and new markets tax credit activity. Now, in his testimony, Comptroller Odding defended the proposed regulations, saying that many of the criticisms against it are misperceptions. Comptroller Odding said that one misperception is that the proposal would rely on a single metric to determine a bank's rating. He said that the proposal requires CRA examiners to consider a retail lending test that is virtually identical to a test proposed by Federal Reserve Governor Lyle Brainerd. Now, I should note that I don't believe most CRA experts would consider the OCC-FDIC retail lending test to be virtually identical to what the Fed outlined in Brainerd's speech. Furthermore, Odding said examiners would also evaluate the impact of a bank's CRA activity by measuring the dollar value of the activity in each assessment area and at the overall bank level. Then, examiners would apply their judgment to assign a final rating. Now, the issue with this approach is that there are a few specifics in the proposed rule that indicate what it really means for an examiner to apply his or her judgment to assign a final rating. That ambiguity can lead to confusion for banks trying to figure out how to get positive CRA consideration. Now, you can read more about how the proposed regulations could affect affordable housing community development investment in this month's issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. We also have a notes from blog post on the topic. I'll tweet out a link. Well, let's move from bank regulation to IRS tax guidance. The IRS, last Wednesday, issued long-awaited guidance on how to determine income limits in the average income test for the long-income housing tax credit. This guidance provided welcome clarification and reassurance for developers and property owners who have been implementing the average income provision, and they've been implementing it without certainty regarding how to set limits for the 20, 30, 40, 70, and 80% designation levels. Now that this guidance is available, I do expect to see even more properties elect to use this third set-aside option. Specifically, Revenue Ruling 2024 affirms that HUD's calculation for very low income limits should be used as the basis to determine the full range of income limits under the average income set-aside. The limit should be calculated in a linear manner. For example, a 30% income limit would be 60% or less of the very low income limit of the same size. Now, before this guidance, the only income limits that HUD published for Section 42 and Section 142 were 50% and 60% income limits. Now, why only those two? Well, that's because the average income set-aside option was created in 2018. When it was created, at the time, there were only two minimum set-asides under which to qualify for the low-income tax credit, known as the 2050 test and the 4060 test. Under the 2050 test, at least 20% of housing units in a property must be rent-restricted and occupied by tenants with a gross income of 50% or less of the area median gross income, or AMI. Similarly, the 4060 test is 40% of units at 60% of AMI. Hence, 
both those tests needed a definition of the 50% and 60% income limit, and that's why HUD published those two limits. Then, the average income set aside was added as a third option to qualify for the long housing tax credit, which created these additional income limits that were undefined. The average income set aside is an option that many affordable housing providers have been advocating for for years. It's a way to provide deeper income targeting and to serve a wider range of household incomes. In essence, the average income set aside allows a property to serve a range of tenant incomes from 20% to 80% of the area median income, as long as the average designation of the affordable units is 60% of AMI. Now, what was the challenge with this new set aside option? Well, we had a new range of incomes possible under the average income test. 20% to 80% of area median income. However, HUD had only published incomes for the two original set-aside options, the 50% and 60%. That means that state housing agencies and affordable housing developers and property owners didn't have guidance on how HUD should calculate the 20%, 30%, 40%, 70%, and 80% income limits for the average income test. Now, HUD does publish several data sets for income limits so it was unclear which of those sets to use. In the Section 8 world, HUD publishes an extremely low income limit. And that limit is often referred to incorrectly or misleadingly as the 30% limit. And HUD also publishes a Section 8 low income limit, often also incorrectly or misleadingly referred to as the 80% limit. Now, why is it incorrect to call them the 30% and 80% limits? or at least misleading? Well, if the industry had to adopt extremely low-income limits for 30% and low-income limits for 80% for purposes of the average income test, then that would have been a bit of a morass. I say that because the extremely low and low-income limits, the misleadingly 30% and 80% limits, have statutory mandated adjustments that HUD applies, adjustments that don't apply to the 50% and 60% calculations. These adjustments result in the limits not being mathematically pegged to each other. Now, one of these adjustments, for example, is that the extremely low income limit for any household size cannot be below the national poverty level. So what does this do? What does this mean? Well, it means a very large adjustment can occur. For example, in Calhoun, Alabama, the very low income limit for a four-person household is $28,100. Now, mathematically, if I just extended that calculation, the 30% limit should be $15,570. However, the HUD published extremely low income limit, the misleadingly called 30% limit, is actually $25,750, more than $10,000 higher than the mathematically calculated 30% limit. The HUD published limit is actually a 46% income limit. Now that's just one example of how the 30% and 80% limits would produce inconsistent income limits. So fortunately, we now have this recently released guidance that tells HUD how to calculate income limits for the full range of income levels that are available under the average income set-aside. Now I did note earlier that the average income set-aside was created in 2018, and this guidance is coming out two years later. During that gap of two years, before guidance was available, the affordable housing community had to speculate as to how the income limits would be implemented under the average income test. Now, thankfully, the IRS guidance does provide limited relief language 
for developers and owners who proceeded differently in the absence of guidance. Now, I'll include a link to, the, to a Notes from Novogratic blog post that has more information on the safe harbor in today's show notes. The blog is titled, IRIS Guidance on Average Income A&I Calculations. Overall, the affordability community is pleased to have this clarity from the IRS. That said, you may have questions about how to implement the average income set aside for your property. And if you do, please contact my partner, Thomas Dagg. I'll also include his email address in today's show notes. Now, I'd like to talk about our conference that we held in San Diego last week. It's our Novogratix 2020 New Markets Tax Credit Conference. More than 500 people attended, and we had two great days of learning and networking. Actually, we had three days because we had a basics day and a bit of an advanced day on Wednesday, optional workshops. Now, there was, as always, important information for stakeholders in the New Market Tax Credit Incentive. One highlight was hearing from the CDFI Fund's New Market Tax Credit Program Manager, Christopher Allison. We heard from Christopher in a Q&A led by my colleague, Bob Ibanez. Now, Allison provided insight during our first session of the conference. He said the 2019 round of allocations is still on track to be announced this summer. That's all he said this summer. That narrows the announcement date to between June 20th and September 22nd. He wouldn't narrow it down more than that. Now, as you know, the 2019 round will be for a $3.5 billion in New Markets Tax Allocation Authority. Allison did confirm that he expects there to be about the same number of allocatees this year as in recent rounds. That would be about 70 to 75 community development entities that would get allocations. Allison also said that the 2020 round, the next round, which is for $5 billion rather than $3.5 billion, well, if the past is a guide, we would expect to have more allocatees. Allison said once again that if the past is a guide, we could expect around 100 CDEs to get allocations in the next round. Now, Allison also touched on a few other significant issues. He talked about the CDFI fund switch from three to two reviewers for new market tax applications. He pointed out that two reviewers is how many are required for other CDFI fund programs. He also clarified that a third reviewer is brought in when there is a variation between the two reviewers. And he reminded attendees that all reviewers are trained and overseen by the CDFI fund. Another issue that Allison addressed was the use of third-party metrics in the community outcome section of the new Marcus Tasker application, an area that we got lots of questions on this last application cycle. A third-party metric isn't required, but it will provide a scoring advantage, according to the CDFI fund. Allison pointed out that the CDFI fund has asked for metrics before, and the CDFI fund sees a third-party metric analysis as a good way to validate the reasonableness of metrics provided by qualified Lonka community businesses. He said that people appear to be taking that change seriously, I can attest to that, and he presumes this provision is here to stay. If you are, by the way, looking for help with third-party metrics, please contact a Novogratic office near you or reach out directly to my colleague, Bob Ibanez. We have experience providing that service for new market tax applications and transactions. Now, my conference panel in San Diego discuss the state of the New Markets Tax Credit and its future in Washington, D.C. Paul Anderson of Repose Associates, one of my co-panelists, discussed the best legislative vehicles for possible New Markets Tax Credit extender legislation. As you know, the credit got a one-year extension at the $5 million level in year and budget legislation, 
which means the credit now expires at the end of this year, at the end of 2020. Paul pointed out that one possible legislative vehicle for an extension is infrastructure legislation. Another possible vehicle? The bill providing relief for Puerto Rico earthquake victims. All of that said, the most likely vehicle would be a bill funding the federal government, which means this September, or if a continued resolution is passed to fund to go past September 30th into the lame-duck session of Congress, then that would be the time. Now, Jeff McMillan of Aiken Gump added an important point when having that discussion. McMillan said that the best vehicle for the new market tax credit extension may be something we don't even know about yet. He reminded us that unexpected things happen every year that can provide an opportunity for tax legislation. His point was that we need to be alert for new opportunities. Now, one takeaway from that in the rest of our session was for new market tax stakeholders to continue to advocate. One way is to be sure to inform legislators and their staff about new market tax credit finance developments in their states and districts. There was plenty more at our conference, and I do want to thank all of our presenters, attendees, co-hosts, and sponsors. All of you made it possible. And if you couldn't make it to San Diego, and even if you did, I do want to remind you that our next New Markets Task Credit Conference is this June in Washington, D.C. I'll include a link to register for that conference and tweet it out as well. Now, turning to other news, the Puerto Rico Department of Economic Development and Commerce has announced the release of draft Opportunity Zones regulations. Puerto Rico is unique in the Opportunity Zone space because virtually all of Puerto Rico is made up of Opportunity Zones. You may recall, states and other possessions could designate up to 25% of their low-income census tracts as Opportunity Zones, whereas Puerto Rico was enabled to include all of them, which means almost any investment in Puerto Rico is eligible for the Opportunity Zones incentive. Now, the regulations, the draft regulations I'm referencing, include some Puerto Rico-specific incentives, including extra tax exemptions and investment tax credits for holders of OZ Opportunity Zone decrees. That's a special standing that will be issued by the government of Puerto Rico. Now, combined with other, many other federal tax incentives in Puerto Rico for recovery, there are an unusual number of ways to help finance developments there. And there is a great need for financing development based upon not-so-distant hurricanes and earthquakes. These new regulations add an extra layer. Now, comments on the proposed regulations are due February 29th. I'll include a link to the proposed regulations, as well as where to send comments in today's show notes. And if you want to learn more about investing in Puerto Rico, we will be discussing community development incentives at our Novogratic Investing in Puerto Rico conference. That's being held May 7th and 8th in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'll include a link to register in today's show notes. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I do hope you're enjoying our podcast, and I want to remind you, if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email me at cpas at novaco.com. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. 
You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novograd and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.